It's an enormous privilege to join you again in Albuquerque. Let me direct your attention right away to Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to read sections, not the entire chapter. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 10. Now, there is a bit of liturgy that has come down across the centuries and is found in just about every denomination somewhere and in many, many languages. It's this. When someone reads the word publicly, he or she ends up by saying, this is the word of the Lord. And the entire congregation responds, thanks be to God. Isn't that a great... So at the end, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you will say... Let's get that one back in the church, right across this land, shall we? <laughs> Hear then what Holy Scripture says. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more. And they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Verse 34. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. And again, verse 51. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked? Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So, why did Jesus tell stories? It might sharpen our thinking if we remind ourselves of some bad answers that are often given to that question. These bad answers are not entirely wrong. They're just horribly reductionistic. And they've just about got nothing to do with the text we've read. But they're commonly given answers. Number one, Jesus liked to tell stories because they make excellent illustrations. As a good preacher, a homiletician, he would make a point, then tell a story and make it a little clearer, make it come alive. Well, I'm sure that a lot of his stories do illustrate various things in his teaching. But if that's his genuine purpose, his centered purpose for telling stories, you're going to have a hard job understanding verses 10 to 12. Did you hear them? Why do you speak to the people in parables? He is asked. This is after he's told a fairly simple one, the parable of the sower. 
And Jesus replies, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. That's why I'm telling the stories. What? <laughs> well, number two, Jesus told stories because he favored the enigmatic. He, he liked the thought-provoking. Stories are intrinsically more open-ended. There is a revival in some circles today of what is sometimes called narrative preaching. So you tell a story, and if you're gifted as a storyteller, it, it can be a bit of a tearjerker. I've been telling stories for enough years now that th there's some stories I could tell you where I could just about guarantee I'd, I'd get about a third of you crying. But that's the danger, isn't it? I can manipulate you. That doesn't mean the tears are from God. But stories are intrinsically a bit more open-ended. So maybe Jesus told stories because he liked enigmatic, thought-provoking, evocative things. After all, what do we read down in verse 34? Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. That is the proof text that the people who like narrative preaching quote every time. Jesus opened his mouth and spoke in parables. That's all he did. He spoke in parables. How shall we respond? Well, number one, it doesn't take much reading of the Gospels to see that Jesus was one of the most amazingly flexible preachers that ever walked the face of the earth. He spoke sometimes using Proverbs. Like the Beatitudes. He spoke sometimes using apocalyptic literature, like what is sometimes called the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. He spoke sometimes in detailed exposition of Old Testament text. He spoke sometimes in wisdom structures. One of the marks of wisdom preaching is that everything's cast in black and white, simple on or off. Do you, do you know? So Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount by saying, you can build your house on the sand or you can build it on the rock. You build it on the sand, the storm's going to wipe it out. You build it on the rock and it's stable. And there's no point putting up your hand and saying, well, you know, quite frankly, some in-between options. You know, how about hard pan clay? <laughs> you, you can't do that with wisdom literature. It's, it's on or off, you know? You either go in the narrow gate and the straight way that leads to life, or you go through the wide open gate and the broad way that leads to death, and many go that way. Well, quite frankly, I'd like to do something in between, you know, a sort of half-size thing, not too moralistic and not too holy, not too righteous. You know, they're, 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 they're ever so strict. To, to be that abstemious is, is not in line with my character, but I don't want to be licentious and wide open and sloppy. I, I'd like a medium-sized way, please. Where does that lead? Well, in wisdom literature, you can't do that. It's, it's, it's black or white. It's on or off. It's in or out. Do you, do you see? Jesus can preach that way, too. And in other times, he's just infinitely compassionate and understanding to people who are broken. He's just the most amazingly flexible preacher. So whatever verse 34 means, it doesn't mean that the only thing he ever did was tell stories. What it means is that he used stories constantly in every domain of his teaching. There are a lot of parables. He used all kinds of forms of preaching, but stories was one of them that he appealed to constantly. Well, others say he told parables in order to hide things from the non-elect. After all, we just finished reading verses 11 and 12. There's some truth there somewhere. The reason I'm telling stories is because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And so Jesus proceeds after this little passage to explain the parable of the sower to his own disciples. He does not explain it to the whole crowd. In some ways, the parables do hide things. On the other hand, you discover a little farther on that Jesus is opening his mouth, verse 35, in parables to utter things that have been hidden since the creation of the world. 
He's not just hiding things. He's unpacking them. He's explaining them. So why did Jesus tell stories? Number one. I've only got two points. This is number one. But then I have three applications at the end, so I'm warning you. (laughs) Number one. Jesus tells parables because in line with Scripture, his message blinds, deafens, and hardens. Let me repeat that. It's very important. Jesus tells parables because in line with Scripture, his message blinds, deafens, and hardens. Now let me tell you the second one. Then we'll go back and unpack both of them. The second is, Jesus tells parables because... In line with Scripture, his message reveals things hidden in Scripture. Now, I know those are long sentences. All the experts in homiletics don't like my sermons. I have these long points, you know. But I I just can't figure out how to make them as crisp as as Alistair can. I just can't do I think you have to be a Scot or something to, 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 to do that. Let me repeat it. It's very important just the same. Jesus tells parables because in line with Scripture, his message reveals things hidden in Scripture. Now let's take them step by step. Jesus tells parables, number one, because in line with Scripture, his message blinds, deafens, and hardens. Verses 10 to 12 set up a contrast. Especially verse 12. Whoever has will be given more, they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. There are two groups, those who have and those who don't have. You back it up into verse 11, and likewise, there are two groups. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom has been given to you, but not to them. There are two groups. Verses 10 to 12 establish two groups. And then, verses 13 to 15 focus on the negative group, the people who don't have whose eyes do not see, whose ears are hardened, whose ears are deafened, whose hearts are calloused. All the focus is on the negative group. And then in verses 16 and 17, the focus is on the positive group. Those who do see and do hear. Blessed are your eyes because they see, your ears because they hear, and so forth. But the negative side, which we're focusing on first is cast in terms of fulfilling Isaiah 6. We read, verse 14, In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Now, remind yourself, please, what Isaiah 6 is about. If you want to turn in the Bible to Isaiah 6 for a few moments, you'll find it a little easier to follow. In the year that King Uzziah died, the prophet Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. Up until this point, he has been denouncing the nation for its many, many sins. Read the woes listed in chapter 5, verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you alone live in the land. A kind of controlling capitalism which squeezes out little people and crushes them. Verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. Wonderful drinks, shaken, not stirred. (laughs) Then, verse 18, woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit. They love corruption. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. They're moral relativists. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. They're arrogant and condescending, full of sneers for right-wing Christian bigots. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deny justice to the innocent. And then in the year that King Uzziah died, the prophet says, 
I saw the Lord. I wish I had time to unpack the vision. He hears the highest order of angels crying out to God in adoring worship before the sheer, brilliant holiness of God. And now Isaiah says, woe to me. His ministry has called him rightly to pronounce condemnation on all the people of the land who are riddled with corruptions of various kinds. But in the light of the holiness of God, you begin again and say, I'm damned. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. And then in the vision, an angel takes a live coal from the altar, touches Isaiah's lips. It's a symbolic way of saying the sacrifice that God himself has ordained cleans you up. It's the only way you can be clean. And then for the first time in the vision, God speaks. It's as if he asks a rhetorical question to the councils of heaven. Who will go for us? Who shall we send? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. How did he say that? You see, there are songs that, that pick up on this verse and make it sound as if Isaiah is, is heroic. Nobody else will go, send me, Lord, I'm your man, just send me, I'll be a faithful prophet of the word. In the light of what's preceded, I, I don't think that's what Isaiah is saying at all. I think he's saying something like, uh, excuse me, uh, here am I, uh, will I do, mm -hmm, please, can you use me? He's just been crushed in humility. And God says, go. And here's your job. This is what you're to tell the people. You tell them this, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. That's what you're to tell them. By your preaching, Isaiah, this is what you're supposed to do. You're to make the heart of his people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. How would you like that preached to your ordination? And Isaiah says, Okay, I, I, I get this. Revival comes when you say. How long will it go on like this for? 10 years? 20 years? I'm still pretty young. 30 years? But eventually you'll send revival, won't you? How long, Lord? That's what Isaiah asks. I said, for how long, Lord? Surely mercy comes at the end, doesn't it? And God says, you preach like this until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant. Until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged. Until the Lord has sent everyone far away, that is in exile. And the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. That's how long, Isaiah. Now would you like it preached at your ordination service? There's not a glimmer of hope anywhere. Until the last two or three lines. But as the terebinth and oak leaves stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. And then in the structure of the book, this is tied to the beginning of chapter 11. From the seed of Jesse, a new shoot comes forward. And chapter 11 spells out the glories of the new heaven and the new earth. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and so on. He will not judge by what he sees, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Righteousness will be his belt, faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. A little child 
child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the axe, like the ox. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. But Jesus didn't come for 700 years. And now Jesus quotes those words to talk about what is going on in his own ministry. He says that in his own day, there are some people where you preach to them. All your preaching does is guarantee that they're blinded, deafened, and hardened. Jesus elsewhere talks about that in non-poetic terms. It's one of the most stunning passages in all of the Gospels. It's John 8, 45. There Jesus says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. That's not a concessive. It's not, although I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. That would be bad enough. It's a causal. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. In other words, for some audiences, for some times and places in history, it's precisely the truth that guarantees hardening of heart. So if you preach in our increasingly secularized, relativistic generation, Jesus is the only way to God. There's a switch that automatically goes on in a lot of people's minds and says, that is such hateful speaking. That is so narrow-minded. It is so arrogant that no matter what you say about the cross of Christ or redemption or forgiveness, or the need to be reconciled to God, it doesn't matter. That switch has been flipped. Now, every time you speak along those lines, all you do is condemn yourself further. What you will do will be hardening their hearts, blinding their eyes, and deafening their ears. And Jesus knew that in his own day, as Isaiah knew it in his day. Jesus is fulfilling it. It's part of a pattern that works out in history. He understands that there are times when you preach where what you do is guaranteed that people can't hear because you're telling the truth. So what are your options? Tell lies instead? Take away the bits of the gospel that seem most obnoxious? Talk about Jesus giving abundant life. I mean, the Bible talks about abundant life, you know. Jesus loves you and wants to give you the abundant life. Oh, that's cool. I like abundant life. Better sex. Better job. More money. I like some of that there abundant life. You just lay it on me. What have I got to do? No, 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 no. Abundant life, it's, it's, it's in John 10. Um, it, it's where Jesus is laying out another metaphor. It's, it's about sheep having grass. Do, 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 do you know, it's, it's, that's the abundant life in the metaphor. Oh, I'm all for more grass. <laughs> and you realize that sometimes the presuppositions of what are being heard in, in this culture are so far removed from the world of the Bible that, 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 that you, you, you pass like ships in the night. You, you, you're just on a different planet. And it may be that the things you're saying are the precise things that sound so alien. Short while ago, I was asked to speak on one of these programs on television where they have to have a token evangelical show up once in a while. So they, 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 sent, they sent a limo for me at the airport. This is, doesn't normally happen, you know, but it happened. So they sent a limo for me, and as I was driving to my hotel, getting ready for the shoot the next day, I started chatting up the driver, you know. How are things going? Oh, he said... Pretty difficult. I said, why is that? I've just lost my daughter. She's 33. She died two weeks ago. <clears throat> I'm so sorry. I said, uh, do you want to talk about it? Well, it's really awful. She, said, she was single to the age of 30. She, she was so enjoying the early years of marriage. She had a lovely garden. And, and suddenly she got pancreatic cancer and 
She was gone, just, just like that. I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? Do, do you think the death of your daughter would, would be something you could look at with slightly different eyes if you believed with all of your heart that she's still alive after death? Would that make a difference in how you thought about it? Oh, he said, I know just what you mean. With that lovely garden of hers, I'm sure she'd like to come back as a butterfly. And I thought, zing, here we go again. Different planet. I'm trying to give this guy the only comfort I know. It's the comfort of the gospel. He, he, he can't hear it. It, it. it is so alien to him. And the exclusiveness of Jesus was not for him a helpful message. Thus, it is the faithful preaching of the word itself, of the truth itself, which in some people at some times and in many people at some times actually guarantees their unbelief. That's what Isaiah 6 says. That's what Jesus says is being fulfilled in his time. And Jesus fulfills this text, this pattern. And one of the reasons why he speaks in parables is precisely because some of the people to whom he's speaking are so offended by the truth that he speaks somewhat, circumlo in, 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 somewhat in circumlocutions, in stories that people can't see the full significance of. Not yet. So, so it serves to blind them while he's still getting across some measure of truth. And after all, Jesus has already gone on record as saying in chapter 5 that his disciples should expect opposition and persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like Daniel, like Amos, and so many others. Don't you see? And that applies to us Two, where Jesus is aware of how some are being blinded by the light, he actually uses more parabolic teaching. Verses 11 and 12. That's what he says. This is in line with what he says elsewhere. Again in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. He openly says, don't cast your pearls before swine. Which means there's a moral obligation, dare I put it so bluntly, to figure out who the pigs are. It's what the text says. So, number one, Jesus tells parables because in line with scripture, his message blinds, deafens, and hardens. Number two, Jesus tells parables because in line with scripture, his message reveals things hidden in Scripture. That's wonderful. Once again, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. We're down now to chapter 13, 34, and 35. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. And now he quotes another passage. This time, not Isaiah. It's Psalm 78. Where in Psalm 78, verse 2, we read, I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. Now, again, you need to read Psalm 78 to figure out what that passage is talking about. Psalm 78 is one of the so-called historical psalms. Where the psalmist reviews something of Israel's history. Now, in one sense, everybody knew that history. It was part of the common heritage, just as in broad term, Americans know American history. Canadians know Canadian history in broad terms. But when the psalmist tells the story of Israel's history, 
He tells it in such a way as to bring out certain kinds of lessons. You can tell so stories about America's history in a lot of different ways. For example, America is the country that was founded by men and women who wanted to be free to worship God as their consciences dictated. Hence the pilgrim communities, the beginning of Boston. Undoubtedly, there were some faults and failures and Yet, their dream was to build a city on a hill. Gradually, they developed towns and communities. Yes, there was slavery. But the time came when America fought its bloodiest war to set the captives free. Yes, undoubtedly, Jim Crow continued but with, in the history of America, you still have to remember that twice in the 20th century when Europe could have gone under, it was American might and American metal and American arms and American blood that helped pull the disaster out of the fire. And it has been a source for so much good and encouragement. You don't find a whole lot of people trying to get out of America, you find a whole lot of people trying to get in. And for all our sins and our failures, yet there is so much good here, isn't there? I haven't said anything that's untrue. Now let me tell you the story again. The Pilgrim Fathers came and didn't pay much attention to the fact that there were a lot of North American Red Indians in the land, and pretty soon... As time passed, they were slaughtered in endless conflicts and fights, taking land that wasn't really theirs. And so there are books like Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee and things of that order. Oh, yes, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence and all of that, but African-Americans really count for only two-thirds of a vote. Yes, 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 the Civil War to bring freedom, but, but, but nevertheless, why did Jim Crow continue so long? Isn't there already a deep-seated racial hatred that, that is pretty hard to eradicate? Yes, yes, we, we did shed a lot of blood in, 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 in two world wars, but, but we've made a lot of stupid mistakes, too, when it comes to warfare, haven't we? Have I said anything that's untrue this time? Same history. Because the truth of the matter is, don't think I'm picking on you, I could do the same thing for Canadian history and British history and Chinese history and a few other countries that I've read into. Because, because history is messy and we're a bunch of sinners and there's nobility and there's creative power and there's art and there's music and there's dance and there's, there's greatness and there's also brokenness and inconsistency and hypocrisy. What you get in a psalm like Psalm 78 is the history of Israel being told in such a way that the author is drawing moral lessons. The author is saying, your history is full of some shameful episodes and you're in danger of falling into the same shame again. Now, that's exactly what Stephen does in his great sermon of Acts chapter 7. Stephen is called to give an account. What does he do? He tells Israel's history. And he starts off in such a way that everybody's listening in and saying, yes, this is good patriotic stuff. We're starting with Abraham, you know. But pretty soon, Stephen's point is, there's a whole track record of hardening your hearts against the prophets whom God has sent, so it's not too surprising that when he sends the Messiah, you bump him off too. That's another reading of Israel's history. It didn't win him a lot of points. You remember what happened to him. And so, what the psalmist declares he's doing in Psalm 74 is this. I will open my mouth with a parable. The expression means with a, 
a, a kind of idiom where I'm saying things a different way. It's, it's an expression in Hebrew that is larger than just a narrative parable. I, I, I will open my mouth to talk about things in, to, in a tangential fashion. I will utter hidden things, things of old. And you pause a moment, you say, uh, which? Are you uttering hidden things or things of old? I mean, if they're the things of old, then, then you're simply reiterating what's already there. But if they're hidden things, then they're not really of old. They're, they're, they're hidden. But they're both. They're there in the text, but you need eyes to see them. You, you, you need to be able to see what the patterns really are that you should be taking lessons from. Don't you see? And that's what Jesus is doing in the parables. He's taking things that are in the biblical text and he's unpacking them. Now, chapter 13 of Matthew, which we're reading, is sometimes called the parables of the kingdom. Because almost all the parables begin here with the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he tells a story. Do do, do you see? So the first one is the parable of, of, of the sower. The sower goes forth, sends some seed, scatters his seed, and some fall on thorn bushes, and some fall on hard ground, and so on, so on, so on. And then when Jesus later unpacks the parable, what, what he does is, is show that this is referring to the different kinds of soils where the word is, 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 is received. Some choke it out, and some seem to be promising, but it, it gets snuffed out, and, and some the birds take it away. But, but some soil is really good, and, and that brings forth fruit, and so forth. And that's the parable of the kingdom? How's that a parable of the kingdom? Well, the point is, you see, that many Jews in Palestine in the first century believed that when the kingdom came, when the Messiah came, it would be a big bang and that would be all all over. I mean, that the righteous would be the righteous, the sinners would be the sinners, the the good guys would win, the bad guys would get thrown into the lake of fire. And it it was going to come and it would be all over. Instead, Jesus is telling a parable of the kingdom in which there's going to be growth and sowing of seed and and it's going to take time and there's going to be different responses. That's the kingdom? When you're expecting a big bang? Then he tells the parable of, of the yeast. The, the, the parable of the kingdom is like, is, is, is like a housewife who t- t- takes some yeast and puts it in a lump of dough, and pretty soon it affects the entire dough. That doesn't sound like the coming of the kingdom to me, does it? Why? What's Jesus doing? He's explaining things that are actually there in the Old Testament about the kingdom, but that virtually no one had seen. For example, here's the prophecy of Daniel. There are lots and lots of passages that talk about the visitation of the Lord on the last day when there will be judgment and there will be blessing. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. All the blessings of Isaiah 11 that we just read and and many, many threats of judgment and, and, and the like. But here's this, Daniel 2. Here Daniel is interpreting one of the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar with various figures And each one replaces the previous one to indicate that the kingdoms come along and replace earlier kingdoms. Then we read, verse 34, while you were watching, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. That is, this kingdom is not merely an imperial force like the Persians that take over from the Babylonians or the Romans that take over from the Greeks. Nothing like, this is a a new kingdom, a new force, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. That sounds like a big bang, doesn't it? But then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff, and the threshing floor in the summer, the winds swept them away without leaving a trace. That sounds like the big bang, doesn't it? The coming of the kingdom with a bang, destroying all previous kingdoms. It sounds like the apocalypse. The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he must reign forever. And then Daniel adds, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Now you have a different image of growth, development, swelling displacement. Do do, do, do you see? That was simply not integrated into first century Jewish thinking. Now Jesus is telling parables to unpack what is in the scripture, things that are hidden 
but are from of old. It's been there a long time. Daniel was 6th century before Christ. But its significance was not seen. And you know, there are a lot of things like that in the gospel. Does the Old Testament predict the sufferings of Jesus? Well, this crowd is certainly going to say yes. At least I, I hope you do. We can remember how the sacrifice of Christ is prefigured in Passover, for example, where the wrath of God passes over because a substitute lamb is, has been put in place. Or Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where the God-ordained sacrifice, the blood of the bull and the goat, is, is taken into the most holy place. And, and on behalf of his own sins and the sins of the people, the blood is laid out by the high priest so, so that the sin is taken away by God's own design and decree. And then there are passages like Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are here. Well, of course the Old Testament talks about Christ and his death. How come the apostles didn't see it before Jesus died? Five times in Matthew's gospel, this book, just in this book, five times, Jesus insists that he's going to the cross. He will be betrayed he will be beaten up, and then he will be crucified, and on the third day, rise again. Five times. And you know what the disciples were muttering? Deep, deep. We'll understand this someday, but Jesus says a lot of deep things. <laughs> deep, deep. Because they don't have a category for a crucified Messiah. Kings win. Messiah's triumph, especially one that can walk on water, create food out of nothing, and, and, and perform miracles, and raise the dead, and heal the sick. How are you going to stop him? Hmm? A Roman square comes along. What chance does he have? Zap, and it's gone. Do you know? That sounds like the coming of the kingdom. A big bang, and it's done. So Jesus actually goes to the trouble of explaining that he is the suffering servant. And they still don't get it. They just keep muttering, deep, deep. <laughs> so when Jesus is in the tomb, the crucifixion has taken place. Are the apostles in an upstairs room saying, yes, I can hardly wait till Sunday. <laughs> Even at that point, they don't have a category for a crucified and resurrected Messiah. But on the third day, he rose. And all their categories had to change. They had to rethink everything. In the light of Scripture, where all these things are already found. The hidden things of God that are already there. It's spectacular. Or picture the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road. He's convinced that this blasphemous sect is damnable. To imagine that a crucified Messiah is even a conceivable category, a crucified malefactor cursed by God, cursed by the Romans, damned. Everyone who hangs on a tree is under the curse of God. Deuteronomy says so. And you make him your, your Messiah? That's daft. It's blasphemous. And then he meets the resurrected Jesus. A resurrected Jesus at the Father's right hand in glory. Which means he's vindicated. If he's vindicated, then he's not damned. Then what was he doing on the cross? If he's vindicated and not damned at the Father's right hand, what's he doing on the cross? So maybe the Christians were right after all. He wasn't crucified for his own sins, but for other people's sins. Other people's sins? A substitute? Where does the notion of substitution come from? Well, Passover and Yom Kippur and Isaiah 53 and a whole lot of other things. Did you see? So he has to refigure the whole Bible. He's got to rethink it. You know, he was a rabbi. He had already memorized the entire Old Testament. 
and a corpus of tradition about twice as long again. By heart. And he didn't understand it. And the intriguing thing is that once his theology has been reconfigured, when he's doing evangelism, he does not say to Jews, you know, I used to understand the Bible that way too, and what you really need is a Damascus Road experience, and then you'll get it all sorted out. He doesn't say that. He says, no, 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 I used to understand the Bible that way, and Christ appeared to me. Let me tell you what the Bible is really saying. And he expounds the Bible. He just expounds the Bible. Again and again and again, he expounds the Bible. He expounds the Bible to Jews. He expounds the Bible to Greeks. When he expounds the Bible to Jews, he says, don't you see the Lord Jesus had to suffer? He had to suffer. Luke says the same thing. John says the same thing. And they're expounding scripture all the time to show what was already in the text, which they're now opening up and revealing. I will open my mouth and speak in parables, in adjacent speech, in different ways of talking. I will make clear what is already there hidden in the text. And that's how the Bible is put together. That's what is meant by this strange expression found in verse 11. Why do you speak to the people in parables, they ask, verse 10? Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom. In Greek, it's the mysteries of the kingdom. But the NIV uses secrets because mysteries in English mean something different today. Mysteries means whodunits. This is not the whodunits of the kingdom. Nor does it mean the mysterious. There's lots of mysteries in, in, in the notion of the incarnation and triune God. There, there's lots of what's mysterious, but that's not what's at, at issue here. The term mystery is used 27 or 28 times in the New Testament. And without exception, it refers to that which has been hidden in time past and is now disclosed. I'm going to explain to you, he says, the secret things that have been hidden in time past and are now disclosed. And you know what? They're all in these parables, these parables of the kingdom. Pay attention. Let me explain some of them to you, he says to his disciples. That's a common theme in the New Testament. Do you remember how Paul ends his epistle to the Romans? This is wonderful. Romans 16, 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel. So we're talking about the gospel. The message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, now we sure know that it's about the gospel. In keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. In many ways, the gospel was hidden. But now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings. It was actually there in the prophetic writings. And Paul goes ahead and makes it known through the prophetic writings themselves. By the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever. And so we come to the positive elements. Do you see in verses 16 and 17? Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see but did not see it, to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Many of the Old Testament writers themselves didn't have all that full of grasp of what was going on, but, 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 but that doesn't mean we now say, you can forget the Old Testament, just focus on Jesus. No, 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 no. They're saying, it's all there in the Old Testament if you just see it right. It's, it's, it's there. It's, it's hidden. But it's, 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 it's now clear in the coming of Jesus. It's made clear, don't you see? And that's one of the reasons why Jesus tells parables. Hence, verse 51 and 52. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked? Yes, they replied with remarkable aplomb. How they handle the death of Jesus shows they had understood very little. But Jesus says to them, every teacher of the law, that is, an Old Testament Jewish preacher, a teacher, preacher of Scripture, of the revelation already given, who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, 
That is, who has now understood what Jesus is about, what the gospel is about, what his cross and resurrection are about, who's really become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures, as well as old. Because they're actually there, do you see? So what should we learn from these passages? Number one. We should gain wonder. Number two, we should gain discretion. Number three, we should gain gratitude. Number one, we should gain wonder in worship where there is a fresh grasp of how God has put the Bible together. Have there not been times in your own Bible reading or in small groups where you look at how the New Testament quotes the Old Testament and you say to yourself, okay, if the New Testament says that's what it means, I guess it's what it means. It's the word of God. But quite frankly, I don't have a clue how he gets there. I mean, it seems really weird to me. I'm sure Pastor Ryan Kelly knows. Someday I'll ask him. Do you ever feel like that? I feel like asking Ryan Kelly all kinds of things. <laughs> and so you think to yourself in a moment of whimsy, why didn't God make Old Testament prophecies a little clearer? You know, did he have to be that obscure? No doubt he wants to be deep, but good grief. If the disciples themselves didn't see it, couldn't he have made it a little bit easier? So let me tell you how I'd do it if I were giving the Old Testament. This is arrogance par excellence. This is Don Carson the Fool talking, not, not Don Carson, the professor of New Testament. Okay? Don Carson the Fool is now going to give you Don Carson's vision of Isaiah 53. This is what Isaiah 53 should have said if Don Carson the Fool has anything to say about it. <laughs> and it shall come to pass in those days, says the Lord, under the reign of... The Roman Emperor Claudius Augustus, footnote. <laughs> I know there's no Roman Empire yet, but after the Assyrian Empire, where you're living, there's going to be a Babylonian Empire, then a Medo-Persian Empire, then a Greek Empire, and then the Romans. And Augustus is going to be the Duda at the top at that point. And he shall enroll the entire Roman world in a taxation scheme. And then he goes on to talk about who Joseph is and who Mary is. He gives their names. And he mentions Pilate and, and, and the washing of the hands, you, you know, the, and, and Pilate, Pilate wants to wash his hands so that he's free from the blood of all men and, and, and so on. And this is all written in the 8th century BC, 700 years before Christ. Now that would be prophecy. We got the manuscripts. That would convince the skeptics, wouldn't it? None of this you know, vague stuff. You know, might be prophecy, might not be. It's typology. Hey, it's prophecy. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. It's prophecy. <laughs> now stop and think about it. I wonder how many babies would be called Mary or Joseph. Then, of course, he's got to be born in Bethlehem. I wonder how many people are going to move to Bethlehem. And then there's Pilate. I will not put my hand in that water. I will not. I will not. <laughs> and, of course, if he doesn't, then all of God's predictions come crashing down. And if he does, then he's got no, 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 no choice. He's, he's used like a robot. Like a robot. His hands are in the water whether he likes it or not. There, you see, the prophecy was fulfilled after all. You think you got problems over God's sovereignty and human responsibility now. Wait till I finish with Isaiah 53 and you got really big problems. <laughs> no, 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 no. In the fullness of God's matchless, impenetrable wisdom. God laid out trajectories 
What's a temple about? A meeting place with God. What's the priesthood about? A mediator between God and human beings. What's a bloody sacrifice about? A picture of a sacrifice yet to come. What's this Davidic kingdom all about? The Messiah, the king of the universe is coming. On, on, and on, and on. All of these trajectories. And, and human beings, whether Jews or Gentiles, are so blind and so daft and, 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 and so narrow-minded, they don't understand this gracious God at all. They understand them in bitty ways. They understand them in picky ways. They understand them in literalistic ways. They don't see their trajectories. They don't see where they come until in the fullness of time God sent forth his son and to help these people understand what the kingdom is really about what the patterns of Old Testament history are about what the institutions and structures of ancient Israel are about. Jesus preaches, amongst other things, in parables. Disclosing things of old that have been hidden and are now being unpacked. There's a profound sense in, if, in which if we if we grasp how this material works in the Bible, not only will we understand our Bibles better, but our hearts will be drawn out in wonder to the God who knew the end from the beginning and designed all these things to help us see Jesus. Number two, we should gain discretion in witness where there is a hostile environment. Jesus himself displays a certain amount of discretion, of reserve about how much clarity he lays on people where he knows that it is the truth itself which will offend. Now, here in North America, it's not a bad problem yet, but I've spent enough time in the Middle East to know how Christians have to bear witness faithfully, but with a certain kind of discretion. I would love to say much more about that, but my time is gone. Finally, we should gain not only wonder and discretion, we should gain gratitude in humility for the gift of seeing the truth about Jesus and his gospel. Because God knows, it's not because we're smarter. No. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. Verse 16, blessed are your eyes because they see, your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. So you have to stop once in a while and think, why did I see the truth of substitutionary atonement? Why do I see the truth of the expiation of sin, the canceling of sin through Christ's death on my behalf? Why do I see the truth of propitiation, God's wrath turned aside because Christ, by God's own gracious, loving design, has turned away the judgment of God? Why have I received the Holy Spirit as the down payment of the promised inheritance? Why do I enjoy the fellowship of the brothers and sisters in Christ in this church? Why do I feel sometimes really homesick for heaven, a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, where I will enjoy resurrection existence on the last day, where I will see God? I will see God. What Christians across the centuries have called the visio dei, the vision of God. And I will be overwhelmed, enraptured, captured, worshiping. What will it be like to be perfectly holy? Perfectly holy. God has already declared me holy because of Christ's son. He's declared me just, though I'm not. Because another's justice has been reckoned mine. But one day, I will be utterly just. What will that be like? 
To you it has been given to grasp the mysteries of the kingdom. And Jesus has told his parables, among other things, so that we may see them clearly. Grounded in scripture, fulfilled in Jesus in the last days. So we sing things like this. My worth is not in what I own. Not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. These are the words of Getty and Kendrick. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer. Greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul, I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. As summer flowers we fade and die, fame, youth, and beauty hurry by, but life eternal calls us to us at the cross. I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Blessed are your eyes because they see in your ears, because they hear. Let us pray. O oh Lord God, open our eyes to see how immensely privileged we are not only with the gospel itself, with Christ Jesus himself, but with the mapping of your wisdom across the ages in holy writ that we may gather before you and worship with gratitude and faith as we see the ineffable glory of your design fulfilled in Christ Jesus for our salvation at the end of the age. In Jesus' name, amen.